Hello everyone, I'm Amelia Allen and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. This week's episode is a big one. This is officially the six month mark for Altitude Crime and I would not still be here if it weren't for my wonderful listeners. So thank you so much for supporting me week after week. I can't believe it's been six months already and I can't wait to tell you stories for another six months. Now remember, if you haven't followed or subscribed to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform, please do that and leave a rating or a review. This will help other people find the podcast and keep us going. At this point, we have listeners in every state except for West Virginia. So if you know somebody in West Virginia that loves true crime, I think you need to let them know about Altitude Crime. And amazingly enough, we have listeners in 29 countries. Again, I never thought I would already be at this point, and it seems like such a short time to be there, and I couldn't have done it without you all. Now, before we get started on today's episode, I would like to touch base on the Gabby Petito case that has really taken over the headlines here in the U.S., I certainly think what happened to her is terrible. I hope that they find her boyfriend soon and can get some more answers. And I think what's really going to be important at this point in this case is that Gabby's body tell a story. We're not quite sure, you know, if she could have been killed somewhere else and dumped. We aren't sure even if they find her boyfriend, if he will even talk. So really the evidence that's going to be on her body is going to be very important at this point. But the reason I really wanted to bring this up, besides that it's heartbreaking and I hope there's some justice in the case, is that we do have to realize that American media loves a missing white girl. And there are hundreds upon thousands of people who go missing year over year who never ever make the news. Heck, there's people who get murdered that don't even get so much as a sentence in a local newspaper. So I want to encourage you to take a few minutes out of your day and Google missing persons in your state. Educate yourself and find out ways that you can help, whether it's by donations, petitions to change local law, or anything else. We have to realize that while cases like Gabby's are really heartbreaking, they echo in our society a lot more than we really think. Okay, that's enough ranting for today. Let's get into our case. This case is a really twisted web, so I am telling this story in kind of chronological order just so you can understand all of the factors that went into this particular murder. Now, when you think of a child being adopted, you picture a better or more compassionate home. You may also think of a parent seeking professionals to help a child with their emotional issues from being in the foster care system or being in a previously abusive home. In the case of Candace Newmaker, her adopted mother did just that, but with fatal consequences. The little girl known as Candace Newmaker was born Candace Tiara Elmore on November 19, 1989, in Lincolnton, North Carolina. Candace was born into a family in poverty, and she was removed from the home and her biological mother, Angela Elmore, by the North Carolina Department of Social Services. Angela herself, 
and her mother, Candace's grandmother, had both spent time in the foster care system as children. Candace's birth home was not an abusive one. Her mother, Angela, had different struggles. She was young, having Candace at age 18, uneducated, and with an uninvolved and abusive husband. Angela would leave her husband in 1992 and took Candace and her other two children to a women's shelter. Because of Angela's past in the foster care system, social services kept a close eye on what was going on in the family. Angela had a hard time keeping up with social services rules and lost all three of her children. Candace was returned to Angela's care for a very brief time, which the child was grateful for. But a fight between Angela and her mother that left her without a car to pick up Candace from preschool would be the last straw for social services, and they removed Candace from the home again. While social service worked to remove Angela's parental rights, Angela did not stop being in her kids' lives. She still celebrated holidays and visited the kids as much as she could. Regardless, the kids stayed moved out of her care and her parental rights were terminated, and Angela would not have the opportunity to see Candace again. Candace spent much of her short life in five different foster homes. Her fits of crying and anger did not go unnoticed by social workers as she moved through the system. Candace's maternal grandparents, Angela's parents, David and Mary, were not out of the picture either. They had considered taking the children in themselves, but decided against it, though, as taking care of three children all under six years of age, as well as David's elderly mother, didn't seem fair in that the children wouldn't get the attention they needed. And if they took the children, they most likely would have to contend with Angela's abusive husband. The grandparents then assumed that adoptive parents would provide a safer and more attentive environment than what they could. They assumed adopted parents would be prepared to care for a child both emotionally and financially, and adoptive parents would go through long background checks prior to being able to adopt. It just seemed like an overall safer and better alternative. After a year of adoption proceedings, Jean Newmaker, a pediatric nurse, adopted Candace in June 1996, when Candace was six years old. She was then given a new name, Candace Elizabeth Newmaker. Elizabeth was also Jean's middle name. Candace then moved to Durham, North Carolina with her adopted mother. Jean took two months off of work and devoted time to getting her adopted daughter settled into her new environments and Candace was eventually enrolled in a top public school called Easley. Jean had problems controlling Candace. She was known to go into fits of rage, and in one of these rage episodes, Candace supposedly tried to set the house on fire. Jean sought out traditional therapy with psychologists, and Candace spent most of her years with Jean on medication. Candace would first be diagnosed with ADD, which she was treated for with medication. In May 1999, Candace was also diagnosed with PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, and was put on Zoloft to help with the symptoms of her condition. Through the years, Candace would see a range of psychologists and psychotherapists who would, from time to time, adjust her medication in order to deal with side effects such as insomnia. Strangely enough, Candace's teachers and neighbors never saw any of these outbursts that Jean Newmaker described. 
And this included the odd claims that Jean made that Candace was sexually aggressive with other children her age. They watched the scared little girl slowly come out of her shell and create friendships and engage in new hobbies, particularly her love of horses and animals. Jean even got her equestrian classes to foster the interest. She would also go on to give Candace the opportunity to try swimming, dance, and gymnastics. Candace applied herself in school, but the coldness of her emotions did not melt away for Jean. As late as February of 2000, just two months before Candace's death, one of Candace's therapists would note that her current medication seemed to be doing well, and Candace was affectionate to Jean and seemed happy during her therapy sessions. Part of what made this case dangerous for Candace was that no caseworker was involved in overseeing her mix of professionals, therapies, school accommodations for her diagnoses, and the communication between all of these parties. Her adopted mother, Jean Newmaker, was the only adult to know the whole picture, which I think made it easy for Jean to see Candace's situation as maybe worse than it actually was. Perhaps if a professional had been overseeing Candace's progress and Jean was only in the role of adopted mother, this story may have played out differently. Regardless, true professionals never saw Candace as having any severe attachment problems, but rather that working through her PTSD would be the most beneficial piece in her prolonged treatment. Jean Newmaker, on the other hand, seemed unimpressed with the progress that Candace had made thus far and found out about a disorder called reactive attachment disorder at a workshop in North Carolina. And the symptoms seemed to match what she was experiencing with Candace. To back up her hunch, the presenters explained that 95% of adopted children had reactive attachment disorder and could not bond with new people. To learn more about the disorder, Jean Newmaker attended a 1999 conference for the Association for the Treatment and Training in the Attachment of Children, also known as ATTACH, as well as started to attend group sessions with other parents navigating parenting children with this disorder. The treatments explained at this conference are based on that these therapies create new neural pathways for traumatized children to be able to create new experiences and personal attachments. These therapies can include excessive physical work and the withholding of food and water, which are considered parenting techniques for children in this type of therapy. At the conference, Jean Newmaker would meet attachment therapist Bill Gobble. According to Carla Crowder and Peggy Lowe's reporting for Rocky Mountain News, without meeting Candace, And with only information provided by Jean, he diagnosed Candace with a fairly severe case of reactive attachment disorder. This disorder is defined as an inability for children to bond and or trust a parent, adopted parent, etc. This disorder has some similarities to PTSD that Candace had already been diagnosed with and borderline personality disorder and it's often treated by social workers and psychotherapists. Some of the signs of reactive attachment disorder include poor impulse control, lack of eye contact, and an overall lack of conscience, among others. And this disorder starts to show in patients before the age of five years old. There is an inhibited version of the disorder that can manifest in hypervigilance and avoidance of physical contact, as well as a disinhibited version 
that can cause a patient to form superficial relationships. Bill Gobble recommended that Jean reach out to Connell Watkins, who ran a rebirthing clinic out of her home in Evergreen, Colorado. Jean had also been referred to Watkins by another attachment therapist in North Carolina. Watkins was an unlicensed therapist, but had performed a number of so-called successful rebirthing therapies on a number of other children. Rebirthing is an alternative therapy meant to recreate the experience of leaving the womb and being born. Rebirthing falls under an area of treatment known as attachment therapy. And these therapies often involve questionable physical restriction or stimulation. The rebirthing technique itself was created in the 1970s by a psychotherapist named Leonard Orr. The traditional version was created to last till around 15 minutes and focused more on breathing techniques. In the years after, it morphed into the metaphor of birth in which a child can shed its unattached feelings and be reborn to their current caregiver. Rebirthing therapy has always been considered a fringe therapy and has never been approved by professional groups of psychotherapists or psychologists. Fringe therapies are any treatments that fall outside standard accepted psychological treatment and medication. Fringe therapies are often also called unvalidated treatments. These treatments do not have strong empirical evidence confirming their ability to treat any kind of disorder. Most professionals see rebirthing as too much stress for children who are already responding to trauma, and there's really no scientific evidence to prove that the technique is valuable in any way. The therapy Candace actually received was only veiled as rebirthing. It was actually a holding session with the use of coercive restraint used within the realm of attachment therapy. But the rebirthing case has stuck as the name for this incident. By March of 2000, the different fractions of Candace's therapist were seeing her behavior in much different lights. Her traditional professional caretakers felt that she was making progress, while those in the attachment therapy community would at times tell Jean that her life was at risk and she could not get to treatment in Colorado fast enough. Once in Evergreen, Colorado, Candace spent almost two weeks with the therapist. Three days before her sessions were to end, she underwent the rebirthing therapy on April 18, 2000. During the just under two weeks that Candace was there, she spent very little time with her mother. She was forced to live with two of the clinic's employees, Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel, who we'll talk about a little bit more here in a minute. To recreate the sensation of the birth canal, 70-pound Candace was wrapped in a sheet by Julie Ponder, Watkins' assistant, and a marriage and family therapist. Pillows were then placed on top of Candace, and Jean Newmaker was instructed to lay across Candace on top of her. A video camera was set up in the corner of the room to record the session. Four adults performed the rebirthing therapy. These four were Watkins, Ponder, Britta St. Clair, who was the office manager at the clinic, and her boyfriend, who was an intern at the clinic, named Jack McDaniel. McDaniel's training in the forms of therapy, he was a construction worker who had been laid off. These four adults used their combined weight of 600 pounds to push Candace from the outside of the blankets and pillows. This was meant to recreate contractions she would have felt during birth. The therapy immediately took a turn, and for about the first 40 minutes of the session, Candace yelled out for help. She cried out both that she was going to die and that she could not breathe. Candace would plead for help around 50 times during the session. 
In Candace's panic, she even managed to rip a 31-inch tear in the sheet that was covering her, and she did this with nothing but her socks on. This still did not free her from the grip of the so-called therapists. And it did not cause pause for them at all, as Watkins had heard children with reactive attachment disorders saying things like this before. During the entire session, Jean Newmaker was present and overseeing this therapy. At the 40-minute mark, Jean Newmaker was instructed to ask Candace if she wanted to be born. Candace replied with a no. It would be the last thing she would ever say. By the 50-minute mark of the therapy, when Candace had stopped saying anything, the therapist would start to call her a quitter. According to the transcript of the tape, Ponder said, quote, Quitter, 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 quitter. Quit, 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 quit. She's a quitter, unquote. The rebirthing session was a total of 70 minutes long, lasting another 30 minutes after this exchange, and would include Candace both urinating and vomiting within the sheet she was wrapped in. The therapists were not alarmed at first when they unwrapped the sheet and blankets to find an unresponsive Candace. They initially assumed she was asleep. According to the transcript of the videotape, it's at this point that Watkins coldly said, quote, Oh, there she is sleeping in her vomit, unquote. When Candace did not wake and the adults realized she was not breathing and had no pulse, Watkins called 911 while Ponder and Jean Newmaker, who had watched the latter part of the therapy on CCTV from another room, performed CPR on Candace. Paramedics arrived and were able to revive Candace initially by putting her on a mechanical breathing device. Once her pulse was found, Candace was moved via flight for life to Children's Hospital in Denver, about a 45-minute drive away. Candace was able to breathe at the hospital with the help of a respirator, but the following morning she was pronounced brain dead. She was kept on the respirator until Jean Newmaker got to the hospital and was taken off the life support the following morning at 9 a.m. Candace's cause of death was ruled as asphyxiation, and the lack of oxygen caused her to have a cerebral edema and herniation. Candace had also inhaled some of her own vomit during the therapy and had an active infection in her lungs. The compression during the treatment had damaged her brainstem and her brain was swollen. Candace Newmaker was 10 years old at the time of her death, and Jean Newmaker had paid $7,000 for the treatment. The case would become complicated from here, as Jean wanted to have Candace's organs donated, but this could not be done as the county was requiring a forensic autopsy first. And on top of this, the case was also a multi-county case. Candace had initially been treated in Evergreen in Jefferson County, but had passed away at a Denver hospital in a different county. Jean Newmaker would be asked questions and then allowed to return to her home state of North Carolina. The attending physician at Children's Hospital would be the one to fill out the death certificate for Candace. The state of her body, coupled with a videotape of the incident given to him by the coroner's office, made it clear that this was not a natural death. The doctor felt that the therapist did not intend to kill Candace and marked her manner of death as an accident. Both Watkins and Ponder were arrested the following month in May 2000. They were both charged with child abuse resulting in death, 
And a year after Candace's rebirthing therapy, they were both found guilty. Second-degree murder charges had been considered in both of these cases. However, considering the intent of the therapist was not to kill Candace, but to treat her, this would have been difficult to prove and to prosecute. So authorities went for the lesser child abuse charges in hopes of better securing a conviction. And the trial did not focus on the legitimacy of the therapy, as there were no laws in Colorado against this kind of treatment at the time. It focused purely on the basis that their actions were abuse and that abuse resulted in the death of a child. The key piece of evidence in both trials was the videotape and audio that the therapists themselves had filmed during Candace's rebirthing therapy. The jury would also be shown videotapes of her other sessions with the therapists, 11 hours of videotape in total. ChildrenInTherapy.org noted that the tapes included Candace having, quote, her face grabbed 90 times and her head violently shaken 309 times, unquote. During many of the sessions, she was being held in the lap of one adult while another sat on her legs. Candace even had her very long hair cut off as a form of therapy. According to ChildrenInTherapy.org, quote, Two psychologists and two psychotherapists testified for the prosecution that none of the procedures performed on Candace has been shown to be effective. They added that, taken altogether, the treatment appeared to violate applicable professional codes of ethics. One even pointed out that it also appeared to violate the Nuremberg Code on Permissible Medical Experimentation, the standard used at the trial of Nazi doctors after World War II, unquote. These videotapes have now been sealed due to a court order. After a three-week trial, the jury deliberated for five short hours and returned with guilty verdicts. Both Watkins and Ponder were given 16-year sentences for the crime. Ponder, the only licensed therapist involved that day, would have her therapist license revoked a year after the jury convicted her. Watkins still maintains that she was not at fault for Candace's death. Both women's defense explain that children always remark that they are dying during these types of therapies and that it was not a red flag that day. They also brought forth the idea that Candace did not die because of her treatment, but rather just happened to die during the treatment due to the exasperation of other health issues she already had. In an interview with 2020, Watkins said that Candace would have been able to get out of the sheets and pillow and that no weight had been placed on her during the treatment. But anyone who watched the video knew otherwise. As Candace tried to break free, the four adults retied the ends of the sheet she was wrapped in and knowingly blocked her movements. And Watkins knew what she had done. According to Cindy Lash's reporting for the Post-Gazette, when police arrived at the scene, she said, quote, the video is going to hang us, unquote. In addition to the child abuse indictment, Watkins was also found guilty of the misdemeanors of unlawful practice of psychotherapy, signature by deception, and another felony, criminal impersonation. Watkins would end up serving seven years of her prison sentence and the remaining nine years she served in a halfway house in Denver. St. Clair and Daniels also faced charges for child abuse resulting in death. 
Both took plea bargains for the felony of neglect child abuse and received 10 years probation. Both also had to complete community service in the amount of 10,000 hours. Additionally, Jean Newmaker, Candace's adoptive mom, also faced charges in the incident. She was arrested for criminally negligent child abuse and took a plea that avoided a trial and got her the minimum sentence of four years in prison. The sentence was deferred and she essentially just served probation. Jean Newmaker's nursing license could have been revoked in the state of North Carolina, but the nursing board let her keep her license. Being that adoption files are not public and highly guarded by both states and adoption organizations, Angela Elmore, 29 at the time of Candace's death, did not learn of her daughter's death until five months later. And it would be reporters from the Rocky Mountain News in Colorado that would alert her to her daughter's murder when they sought out more information about Candace's life prior to being adopted. Candace's case brought alternative therapies to the forefront of the news and brought on heated debate between those opposed to attachment therapy and those who weren't. Candace's remains would lay to rest in North Carolina. According to state officials, Candace's death was the first due to psychotherapy practice. In April 2001, Colorado banned the use of rebirthing therapy due to Candace's case. This law was named Candace's Law and signed by Governor Bill Owens. Candace's maternal grandparents attended the signing of the law in Candace's name. They also attended portions of the trials of her killers. Candace's law also banned the use of active restraint in all psychotherapy treatments. In 2002, Republican Representative Sue Merrick would speak on Candace's grandparents' behalf in the U.S. House of Representatives. She urged to pass the Candace Newmaker Resolution to encourage each state to outlaw the practice of rebirthing. Merrick's efforts didn't get very far, though. From what I can tell, rebirthing is still only outlawed in two states, Colorado and North Carolina. Okay, everybody, we've got a lot to unpack here. Musing number one. So I understand changing a kid's last name when they're adopted, but I wasn't really wild about Gene Newmaker changing Candace's middle name. I mean, I guess it's one thing if the kid's like an infant or super young to where like they're never going to know, but she was six. I mean, Candace would have understand that her name was being changed and it just seems a little gross to me. Musing number two. I also found it was interesting that Candace's mom did not lose her for really like terrible abusive things. And in a terrible kind of irony, they took her from what was a decent situation that was just a mom that needed some help to what ended up being a situation that was fatal. Musing number three. This case really brings to light the thought that only submissive children are good children. And to me, it's kind of a modern version of a lobotomy. According to the organization Zero to Three, parents were proven to think that they had a really big understanding of emotional development for children when really they didn't. And I think that's something that even today when we have so much more knowledge about mental health and things like that, I think it's something that's really overlooked. That if a child isn't good and quiet and polite, they're not a good child. And that's not necessarily the case. Musing number four. 
is kind of rang to me a little bit the story of Marie from our story about Mark O'Leary and his string of rapes from Washington to Colorado. It makes you wonder if Candace really did have these outbursts around Jean, if they just didn't get along that well. Marie in our story a few episodes ago just didn't get along with her last foster mom and maybe had some crying out, attention-seeking things happening just because she didn't feel secure in that relationship. And also, I can applaud Jean Newmaker for really giving Candace a lot of opportunities as far as doing equestrian classes and dance and this and that. A lot of the neighbors and teachers kind of said that Candace didn't have to want for anything. But just because kids have everything doesn't mean that it heals their emotional scars. And just from the things I've read, it kind of makes me wonder if that's how Jean was trying to make that situation better. Musing number five, Jean is not alone in reaching out to alternative therapists. According to the book about Candace's case, Attachment Therapy on Trial, As of 2003, as many as 50% of parents were known to seek out fringe therapies. And there was certainly a number that seek out only this type of therapy for children that's unvalidated. As of the early 2000s, almost 100 websites existed that were dedicated to attachment therapy and therapists dedicated to that kind of treatment. And Candace was not the only child to die from such treatment. In 1996, four-year-old Crystal Tibbetts died after being physically restrained by her adopted father. The adopted father, Donald Tibbetts, had been told to do this by Crystal's AT therapist and was sent to prison for the child's death. A two-year-old named David Polrice also died after an AT therapy, having been essentially beaten to death. Musing number six. I do find it pretty insane that Jean Newmaker was in the room or watching Candace's rebirthing the entire session and had no urge to stop what was happening. That's a huge trust in your therapist. And I don't know if she was just at the point that she felt desperate and felt that this was the only option and really trusted these people or what. But it blows my mind that a mom could sit there and hear their child scream that they can't breathe and not do anything. Musing number seven. So the initial thought by the therapist when they uncovered Candace that she was just asleep is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. How can a child fall asleep when people are literally shoving at her? Like I get kids fall asleep in weird places, but that is the lamest thing I've ever heard. Musing number eight. I was not thrilled with hearing that Jean Newmaker did not have her nursing license pulled. And it kind of makes me wonder about North Carolina's procedures in general. It seems like social services could have done a little differently with dealing with Candace's biological mom. And it seems like they could have done a little differently here dealing with her adoptive mom. But I always hate when people judge my state for certain things. So if you're from North Carolina, please reach out. I'd love to hear what you have to think about this and kind of how the system works in your state. Musing number nine. So I already told you about the intern Jack McDaniel. He was the one who was a construction worker that got laid off. And the only reason he was an intern at the clinic was because his girlfriend was the office manager there. Well, let me throw in another wrench of creepiness here. 
Apparently, while Candace was in her other treatment and living with Britta St. Clair and Jack McDaniel during therapy, she was told to call him Daddy Jack. And I'm just going to leave that there. Musing number 10. If you are interested, there is a link on altitudecrime.com to the transcript of the videotape taken during Candace's rebirthing session. But beware on reading this because it is short but brutal to read. The things that the adults were telling this kiddo who you now know was perishing in these sheets and they're calling her a quitter and telling her just to give up and just to die. It's pretty brutal. If you're interested, it's there. But I don't say that I would necessarily recommend it. Musing number 11. So... This case is interesting to me because, you know, there's a lot of work now in like past life regression and multi-generational therapy. You know, people, even myself, do things like crystals or aligning your chakras or energy work, Reiki, things like that. And those are all alternative therapies and not all of them are bad. But I kind of wonder now that those things are so rampant that if this case happened today, would people respond differently? Would there be more people in the camp of like that it was okay because we have so many alternative therapies now or kind of how that would work out? So it was interesting covering this case because I do believe in a lot of non-traditional therapy and medicine and things like that, but it doesn't make me feel for the quote unquote therapists in this case at all. Musing number 12. The book that was written about Candace's case called Attachment Therapy on Trial. It's kind of interesting because they know in it at one point, the authors say that the book was written to inform people and the book is pretty formal. There's a lot of statistics. It's definitely a great read if you're interested. But these authors also mention themselves that AT therapies are often found by kind of word of mouth, And this kind of underground piece of these type of French therapies can make it attractive to less educated adults. So I thought it was kind of ironic that like they're writing this really sophisticated book to inform people, but the people that they probably need to inform are probably not reading that sophisticated of a book. So there's probably other ways that this type of therapy needs to be talked about more on a mainstream level. Musing number 13. Okay, and this is my longest one, but stay with me. It's the last one. Candace's case has infiltrated pop culture. An episode of Law & Order is loosely based on her case, and if you're interested in which one, I have included the IMDb link on altitudecrime.com. But her case was most predominantly alluded to in the YouTube art project called Petscop. This art project took the form of the popular Let's Play video in which a gamer records their play and provides commentary. But the beauty to this art project is that the game in question was fictional and took some really deep dives into the dark underbelly that is child abuse. Now, I don't typically get into things like this, but I have watched these videos over and over again, and it's amazing the feelings that the creator was able to elicit from such a seemingly innocent YouTube. Format. Additionally, the project played out over the course of three years and opened up really wide speculation with its audience. I really recommend checking it out if you have some time, and I have the link to the YouTube channel on altitudecrime.com. 
And there have been a litany of commentaries and analyses on the Petscot project, but my personal favorite is by YouTuber David Stockdale of Nightmare Masterclass. He has a 16-part video playlist breaking down the Petscot videos, and he has some other really great commentary on his channel, and you should definitely check him out. He's at YouTube at youtube.com slash c slash nightmare masterclass. I've also included a link to his Petscott playlist on altitudecrime.com. Again, this kind of art project is not for everybody and I'd never gotten into something like this before, but it's actually how I even found this case. And I kind of dove into the Petscott thing like a year ago, long before I started Altitude Crime. So it's very interesting and it's kind of interesting even if you're not into that kind of thing. So if you have a few hours to waste, I definitely recommend it. Okay, everybody, that's it for this week's episode. And thank you again so much. If you're a returning listener, if you're a new listener, I'm so excited to be hitting six months with Altitude Crime. So please make sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And I asked a lot of questions in this episode, so share your thoughts. You can get me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And if you haven't seen, I did an update just a couple days ago on the Gannon Stock case. The judge just ruled if Letitia Stock is going to trial or not. So if you didn't hear that, you probably haven't followed or subscribed. I do randomly have midweek content coming out, so make sure you do that if you want to be updated on when that comes out. Okay, crime clan, this was a big one to unpack, and I can't wait to tell you another story next week here on Altitude Crime. Episode 26, Therapists or Murderers, The Case of Candace Newmaker, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by podbean.com.